From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. What Me Too did was it made that conversation a lot louder. Welcome back to the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. Since hashtag MeToo stormed the headlines of the New York Times and New Yorker magazine in October 2017, when more than a dozen women accused Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein of sex crimes, powerful men across the spectrum of industry have been felled. Today on our show, we have Marianne Franks back with us to unspool the now worldwide phenomenon. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, Marianne. Thanks for coming back to The Explainer. Thanks for having me back. Harvey Weinstein. Why did the toppling of Harvey Weinstein becoming the, become the tipping point to kind of all this hashtag me too? There are probably multiple reasons for this. A lot of it has to do with the fact that, of course, the victims were brave enough to come forward. It also had to do with the fact that there were so many of them. We're talking about, what is it, something like 80 women total or more than that who've said that he has either sexually harassed them or sexually assaulted them. And then we're talking about who those women are. So these are, in some cases, women who are quite prominent themselves, wealthy, uh, well-known. And then probably some part of it is the fact that there are people who suddenly care about sexual assault if the person who's being accused is someone they don't like or that they think represents something that they disapprove of. So in some ways, Harvey Weinstein stands in for the liberal Hollywood elite. And so unfortunately, some of the people who wanted to take this seriously or pretended to take it seriously were probably doing so because they thought it was a way of um, indicting that kind of person or that kind of um, culture in some ways. And that's very unfortunate, of course, because we know that sexual assault doesn't have a politics and it doesn't have a particular socioeconomic class. But unfortunately, people are much more willing to think about sexual assault accusations if it's against a man that they don't approve of. So if we're looking at Cosby, oh, the lovable America's most lovable dad with victims who were not rich and powerful, that was what set the two cases apart. I think in some ways, I mean, also in the Cosby case, you had multiple victims. Um, also, a lot of these victims had stories that were from much um, longer ago. And so that was, I think, dogging both of these kinds of cases. But yes, there was there's certainly a sense in which not only do certain people want to take sexual assault seriously if it's someone they don't like, there's a lot of people who want to come to the defense of somebody if it is someone they identify with or have really strong feelings about in terms of their status in the culture. And so what we unfortunately see in the Me Too movement is a lot of selective bias about what kinds of crimes we care about and who we tend to believe, both in terms of who we think is a believable or credible victim and who we think is a responsible perpetrator. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that leads me into uh, when you were saying it happened a long time ago, like these t- these crimes seem to have taken place in air quotes a more accepting time that it was well known in Hollywood the casting couch like everyone knows that term can you speak a little about how you try a case from this quote more accepting time in a less accepting time 
Right. I mean, it's important to remember, too, though, that in Weinstein's case and in a lot of these other cases, some of the incidents that are being discussed are very, very recent. But it's also true that some of them stretch back to other decades. And we often hear as kind of a either defense of what happened or at a minimum, a kind of lessening of what's happened, a minimization of what's happened is some reference to it being a different time, either that, you know, gender equality just wasn't the same kind of thing or everybody understood what the norms were in a certain industry. And what's odd about that, of course, is what that seems to be suggesting is that there was a time when you didn't have to recognize women's humanity, when consent to sex was just something that was optional. And I think many of us who consider ourselves to be part of the civilized society would like to say, no, it's always been apparent that that is... Um, that sexual assault and sexual harassment were always unacceptable, and many people never engaged in it, no matter what the time period was. And it's really strange to think that the takeaway or the implied takeaway would be be more lenient on these people because it was a different time, as opposed to we should be a lot harder on these people because what that really means is they got away for it, uh, they got away with it for much longer than most people might today, and the victims who were uh, attacked were deprived not only, of course, of the autonomy uh, and the dignity that, that of course, is, is what comes under attack in sexual assaults, but also were denied the social validation that what happened to them was wrong. So it seems to me that that argument about it being a different time and there being a time period when we were much more tolerant of sexual assault really should lead us to being a lot harder on these perpetrators mm -hmm. and a lot more sympathetic to the victims who have had to wait this long for justice and some of whom will never get it. I can't help but think about the time when, I mean, if we go way back, women didn't have the vote. But even in fairly recent times, a, a woman couldn't get a credit card without her husband signing off on it. So it was a very male-dominated society where women did not, not only did not feel they had a voice, but really did not have a voice. That's certainly true. And again, we can look at that history and say to ourselves, well, then let's be a lot more relaxed about our standards or about the way that we would judge actions that took place in that era than actions that took place today. But one of the questions we should always ask ourselves is, well, how does society ever progress? It's partly by not accepting the status quo and not simply saying, because it's been like this, it should always be like this. The only way we ever make progress is to recognize just how terrible it was that women were denied um, certainly the right to vote, but certainly also any number of other essential rights that hopefully uh, one would now agree they are entitled to. And that what that also means is we should be looking at a kind of reckoning socially and otherwise, because we owe women a lot, because that is a history of disenfranchisement and exploitation and subordination that the culture that we live in has got to have some reckoning for. Men need to be held accountable for that history and women need to be understood within the context of that history and the claims they make today and the conversations we have about gender equality today need to reflect that really troubled history. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a, um, a celebrated French author who is famous for his pedophilia. He's written about it. He's very open about it. He's now in his 80s, and all of a sudden, uh, he's being called to task by society, uh, a society that's no longer tolerant of adult child sex. Can you comment on like the ripple effect of, of our little Harvey Weinstein Me Too movement and, and how that's, that's going global? I think there is something to be said for 
the idea that the Me Too movement, at least in terms of the hashtag and the sort of social momentum around it, certainly did start a conversation. Uh, I think it's important, though, to understand that in every culture, uh, at every time period, there have always been women and some men, but certainly women who have been saying there are terrible things happening that need to be addressed. And sometimes society remembers them and sometimes we don't. What Me Too did was it made that conversation a lot louder. And I think it was probably because it's such a spectacle, it is difficult for certain accepted sexual practices to simply go unnoticed these days. That being said, there are people, there were people who for a long time um, had condemned the idea of glorifying this kind of sexualization of the young. Uh, we have to be careful to, to consider the fact that we still live in a society where we sexualize young women in particular, where we do romanticize um, many things that so-called artists or philosophers or great thinkers or whoever it might be, we tend to romanticize their erotic relationships and tend to give them a kind of pass, even today, that, um, that they probably don't deserve. And so it's a painful conversation to have that people have to rethink some of their very settled assumptions about what the relationship between great men, if we want to call them that, um, and women should really be. But it's really long past time that we had that conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of brings to mind uh, the photographer Sally Mann and the huge backlash over the very, we could say, innocent photographs that she took of her children at their home. There is this very complicated conversation, I think, to have about what we mean when we say that children are being sexualized. And there is some great irony in the fact that, as you say, there are especially female photographers who have been widely criticized for their portraits of children that um, arguably are innocuous or at least artistic in some ways that are not exploitative, whereas actual pedophiles have gotten a pass. And so there's an overlay here of not just when do we decide we're concerned about the sexualization of children, but who do we think is allowed to sexualize children and in what way that so many people would be more comfortable with really asymmetrical relationships, actual sexual relationships between older men and younger women, um, but would suddenly get extremely critical and very moralistic about um, a photographer or an artist who might be exploring some nuanced questions about how we look at children and what children represent in in modern times. Mm -hmm. I'm sure if a convicted pedophile male had taken those photos, it would have been a somewhat different conversation. Um, Is there a a dark side or like uh, something that surprised you that came out of uh, the Me Too movement? There are a lot of downsides to what's happening. In any movement, there's going to be hasty judgments made. In any movement, there's going to be mistakes that are made. And in any movement, there are going to be moments of sort of overexposure of certain cases and certain facts. Um, So all of that is happening with Me Too as it would happen with any other movement. But What's particularly concerning, of course, is that as much as it may look like there's this momentum, that is, men are being held accountable for their actions, there have been very few trials. It's very much few and far between Mm -hmm. to actually see any of the people who have been accused of multiple assaults actually facing anything like consequences for their behavior. Other than financial. Other than financial. And even there, right, it's hard to necessarily see how... Um, whether or not that's going to stick. So even when we've seen some people let go from their jobs, uh, et cetera, we're not sure if they're not going to come back in a couple of years after things blow over, as we've already seen some of them do. Or they have trillion-dollar golden parachutes. Exactly. 
So we're not actually seeing, I think, the kind of accountability that people think we're seeing. And when we do have moments where we're taking the allegations somewhat seriously, that in itself can be incredibly traumatizing. So watching what happens uh, when Bill Cosby's on trial, uh, watching the the kinds of cultural commentary that's made about that, watching the Kavanaugh investigation, um, watching allegations come out against Donald Trump, watching the impeachment trial. In other words, the fact that you might finally take something seriously and it may get a public airing may just mean that in the end, whoever happens to be in power says, you know what, this is actually okay what this person did. And in some ways, I worry about that uh, consequence um, even more than people simply remaining silent because how much courage it takes for victims to come forward, how much is invested in that conversation about watching someone be held accountable or attempt to be held accountable, and then watching the judgment, whether socially or legally, be, no, this person's actually not guilty when we know that they are in a very deep and meaningful sense. So I'm very concerned about how loaded with symbolism and emotion these kinds of trials are because they are such rare opportunities and rare encounters with powerful men um, with anything like investigation of their actions. But what's concerning is that we may just be looking at an incredibly powerful machinery that says even when women sacrifice this much and even when they are credible and even when they come forward with massive amounts of evidence, these men are still going to get away with it. On walkers, evidently, all of them. Well, they're very frail now. Yeah, it just seems like, oh, I'm on trial. Let me go get a walker. Um, so is there any handicapping on on the Weinstein? Uh, we're speaking as the prosecution will probably rest later, later today and we'll see the um, the defense case. It's really hard to know for all the reasons that we've just discussed that what we've seen throughout this trial is women relating extremely painful, traumatizing events, um, some of them even experiencing panic attacks. Uh, we've seen pretty much every old trick in the book that that um, defense lawyers use against um, women who have accused others of rape, attempts to vilify them, to portray them as promiscuous, as crazy. And that's really difficult to watch. And it's hard to know how that's going to affect the jury. And there's another aspect of this that I think the jury um, highlights here that more people should be talking about, which is that in jury selection, um, in many of the sexual assault trials, and uh, certainly in the Harvey Weinstein trial, the questionnaire that potential jurors are given in order to try to eliminate them for bias or to screen them out for not being objective, among the questions that they're asked is whether or not they've ever been the victim of sexual abuse or whether someone they know has been. Um, there is no corresponding question about whether or not a person has committed sexual abuse. And so the concern I have, even at that initial stage of who we're screening out of the jury, is so many women have been victims of sexual abuse. And so we're already implying in some ways that those women somehow are less qualified to be jurors than others. And we're not asking questions about bias and concerns about what it would mean if someone himself has committed sexual abuse and whether or not he should be on a jury. So I'm very concerned about the way the juries get selected to begin with. A jury of one's peers um, given the high rate of sexual assault in this country, really ought to include um, sexual assault victims rather than exclude them. So I don't know that I have much confidence necessarily in the way that this jury was selected or really any jury gets selected. And given that every trope has been played out by the defense in terms of trying to uh, belittle and demean the witnesses um, in this case, it's hard to know whether this is going to be a moment where 
we take women seriously and find them credible or whether this is going to be one more example of the opposite, the backlash effect, the attempt to not only not believe, but to punish women and to humiliate these women for daring to come forward. Well, with Weinstein, there's another bite at the apple because there's another case uh, to be tried still in, in Los Angeles. There is. And for all of these cases, it's important to keep in mind that whatever the individual outcome of any individual case, there's obviously a cultural impact that is powerful. And it's a question of whether or not other victims will be uh, feel as though they can come forward. But again, I, that can go in either direction. It can either be that this actually tells sexual assault victims, you will be heard, you'll be treated with respect, and justice might be served, or whether the message is going to be, it doesn't matter how damning the evidence is, this person is going to get away with what he's done. Right. The Mitt Romney moment. I'm, I'm going to suffer consequences for this decision. Um, well, great. I Stay tuned. Yes, we'll have to see what happens in this case and, and in any next cases that come up. But this is raising questions, of course, about who else is going to be brought to account. Uh, we know, of course, that President Trump, even though he's been acquitted in this impeachment um, proceeding, there are outstanding accusations of sexual assault against him that might become the next trial. Uh, there are lots of people, unfortunately, who have credible sexual assault allegations against them. So Weinstein is probably just the beginning, for better or for worse. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us at The Explainer. If you like the show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Ray D. Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's episode was brought to you by the University of Miami School of Law's International Exchange Programs. Miami Law offers 26 international education opportunities in 14 different countries. For more information, visit www.law.miami.edu.